decorating's not that costly, Jay. Are you getting someone in to decorate? I can't decorate, can I? Of course you can. I can't do anything. I'm not a, I'm not a handy man. You've got hands. I have hands, but I, I prefer to use them to type. You have enough money to buy a, a paintbrush and paint. Oh, we have those. We have those. So, so you don't need to recoup any money if you were to just paint this tiny room by yourself. No, because pay I... me, I'll do it. No, cheap. You should, <laughs> you should do it out of love. <laughs> yeah, you have to help. <clears throat> oh God, have I got to learn skills? Cut to a montage of us getting <laughs> paint <laughs> on our noses. <laughs> Are we doing like a sort then, of love dog one? <laughs> no, it starts like that, but by the end it's really chaotic and we're drinking it. <laughs> <laughs> Just turns into Just a crack den somehow. Mayhem. How did this happen? <laughs> Why does this always happen with our montages? Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story... Begins... In... In? (laughs) On. On? I've got a specific day this time. It begins on on July... March 5th. 16th. 18... 19... 50... 40... 7... 5... (laughs) July the 16th, 1945, because that is the day that the first successful atomic bomb test took place at a site about 210 miles south of Los Alamos in New Mexico in the USA. Naturally, this test, codenamed Trinity, had many repercussions in the history of the 20th century, not least of all for the people of Japan. The advent of nuclear weapons set the scene for the Cold War and a sense of impending doom that people will still will live with to this day. Not as much. Not as much. Even though we're, we're in a lot more danger of that happening. Like the shines off it. It's like there's so many other things that could kill us. Yeah. Climate emergency. That's it, isn't it? Elon Musk. Mm. <laughs> so many things could kill us. Like nu- nuclear is now not. It's not the one big threat. It's one of many. Mm. Yeah, I, I take your point. <laughs> It's better to be... Do you think it's better to be deeply afraid of one thing, or...? Well, I think you're just afraid of the new thing. Mm. I think that's the scariest thing. Yeah. And then once you've sat with it for a couple of decades... <laughs> just got used like, to it. Okay, it didn't happen mm. yet. And then something else comes to it. Bears! <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, four years of uh, a celebrity running America and we still didn't have a nuclear war. We didn't have any wars during Trump's time. I mean, he was like one of the only presidents that ever happened. Mm. America didn't go to war under Trump. They were. I'm sure they were in a war. They may not have gone to war. They may not have added to the war list. But they went to war with every other president. Because mm. it's a good way to make money and get people on side. Anyway, we're not talking about Americans. Although we kind of are. Because although, you know, the Cold War was a big thing, mm. big thing that came out of the advent of nuclear sort of weapons... It was not the only impact that the nuclear sort of age had on the world. Because some people also believe that the first atomic blast was significant in that it got the attention of aliens. Mm. Mm. Who are these people? Ah, well, one is respected ufologist Dr Stephen Greer, who is the founder of the Centre of the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence in the USA. Is it a self-appointed ufologist? I think... I feel like 
you say it, and if people don't call you on it, then you're allowed to continue using the title. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a ufologist. Okay. Yes. They're listening to me. They've taken the pamphlet. It's more like ufologist, isn't it? I, apparently it's ufologist. Okay. That's the lingo. There are a few theories as to why it might be that aliens started paying more attention to Earth following the first nuclear test. Some, like Dr Greer, believe that the aliens became concerned that we might cause damage to the planet that would be irreparable, if you could imagine the idea of humans damaging the planet, mm. and that the aliens want to make sure that, uh, you know, I'm guessing even something like Earth, a habitable planet is quite a commodity, and they, they don't mind if we kill ourselves, but if we damage the planet, that's real estate that can't be used. You think, like, enlightened beings mm. that are you know, have progressed to so much further than we have mm. in technology and everything. If they're keeping tabs on planets, mm. a nuclear bomb going off would sort of signify a leap to the next level of technology. I understand it in that way. Well, that is the counter-argument, yeah. yeah. That's and another like, argument. Okay, we kept tabs and now... Oh, pinged up here this yeah. this planet is on stage one they've got to they've the got to that 40, we need to start paying yeah. a bit more attention now Yeah, 470 stages and that's that's what other people have said it's like they're not you know sort of looking after the climate they're not trying to look after the planet what they're seeing is that this is a species that's now um, developed to the point that they can be contacted yeah um and supported to begin traveling outwards towards the stars so now is the time you've got you've got to that first stage on your own but we can now help mm. from that point because you're at a place, I guess, when you're starting to consider the first moon landings and stuff where the idea of aliens becomes a bit more accessible to you and you're not just going to you know, immediately say they were gods and things like that. You're going to be like, oh, okay, no, mm -hmm. I mean, it makes sense. While others, yet other ufologists, are convinced that the inevitable alien invasion will be taking place any day now. Right as a result of that, because they're scared that we may develop further, so they've got to kill us before we get the technology to kill them. You believe in aliens, don't you? You believe aliens exist? I believe there's... It there has to be. Yeah, in, in a universe the size of ours, the idea that we were the only situation where life could evolve but seems But you're questioning bit... other ones in our locale. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. I think if even if they do exist... I think everybody thinks aliens exist. No, I don't think everyone does. I think you can logically get anybody there. Mm. Yeah, it is about proximity. It's about yeah. do do they exist close enough that it could ever impact on us? Probably not. Although I'm I'm gonna with this story keep an open mind, and I hope you will too. Yeah, no, I I, I think they're close. I think we arrived here together. Well, not in the humans, same car. But I think <laughs> we are born of alien um, travel. That's, that's where you're starting from? I think so. I, I think that life arrived on like a meteorite or something. Oh, okay. That makes sense to me. Mm. Just the look of it. Like just happened to hit a planet that... Yeah, just a few amoebas just floating around. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm like, oh, enjoy this. I, I cannot... Arrived just at the right time. It's not molten anymore. <laughs> I can't What's disprove that? your theory. <laughs> oh, yeah, nice. Water, yeah. Brackish. Mm. <laughs> just right. But if you believe in aliens or not, and I don't want to, I don't want to alienate our listeners who don't. I'm going to leave. 
<laughs> there is no I'm alienating you in this room. <laughs> There's no doubt that there was a significant increase in the amount of UFO sightings from the mid 1940s onwards. The most famous amongst these early sightings is probably the Roswell incident on July 8th, 1947. But that was only one of hundreds of reported incidents across the USA. And in fact, by early 1948, the concern that America was being singled out for special extraterrestrial attention resulted in a real live death. How? I like the fact that you've leaned in now. You're like, oh, okay, real death. Let's get in. On January the 7th, 1948, at around 1pm, Kentucky Highway Patrol contacted the local military base at Fort Knox to report a sighting of a 90-metre-wide circular object that was travelling through the air at high speed and heading their way. At 1.45pm, a guard at the base called Sergeant Quinton Blackwell reported that the object had arrived. It was described by the soldier as very white, about one-fourth the size of the full moon. It appeared to have a red border at the bottom. Mm-hmm. It apparently remained hovering over the base ominously for over half an hour. At this point, the tension obviously got to be too much, and the base commander ordered four F-51D Mustangs, which are planes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it'd be weird to send four, out the Mustang car. Or horses. <laughs> yeah, four horses. <laughs> yeah, go go and ride up, see if, <laughs> see if you can't just tap the bottom of it, um, to intercept the craft. So he's sending out the jets, which naturally... Was a weather balloon. No, no, no. It spooked whatever this craft right. was, and the craft shot off straight upwards as soon as the planes approached. Ooh. So it's hovering, hovering, hovering. There, it's just. A, so is this in like U.S. government documents? This incident. This is reported from the U.S. It's purportedly from government right. documentation that somebody saw, but wasn't able to gain access to right. for too long. Um, of the four pilots, only one had an oxygen supply. So naturally, it was one of the other three who took it upon himself to continue chasing the object. Captain Thomas Mantell continued climbing after it to over 25,000 feet before he blacked out due to lack of oxygen. Jesus. So he he was basically in, you know, he he was almost the first astronaut (laughs) accidentally. Um, His plane fell to earth at 3.18pm and he hadn't managed to wake up by that point so he died in a sort of fireball of jet fuel could it have been a very elaborate suicide i mean that's one hell of an elaborate suicide to die a hero you're creating a craft well how how what happens to the you wanted to die a legend what's his name his name is captain thomas mantell yeah mantell who died chasing a ufo yeah like the the equivalent of catcher get off my lawn yeah get out of it you alien i wonder what he actually chased it is not known, but he, he obviously, it was real enough to him that he was willing to put his life at risk in order to, to pursue it. And the three other pilots all agreed that they were chasing something, so it wasn't like it was just a trick of perspective on him. Mm. And it had been reported from people on the ground, it had been reported travelling in a direction, and it had arrived and hung there, so it wasn't even like it was a cloud formation because it suddenly stopped dead over a military base for an hour and then when they went to approach it, suddenly it took off at speed. So it rules out a lot of the things that you'd normally say. Yeah. You know, oh, it's a trick of the light. Oh, it was an optical illusion. Oh, it was a weather thing. Doesn't sound like any of those things. Anyway, by the 1950s, people were not only seeing UFOs in America, but also apparently meeting and communicating with their alien pilots. 
on a semi-regular basis this was being reported. People such as George Adamski, a regular American man who, prior to meeting aliens, had founded the religious organisation the Royal Order of Tibet as a workaround to get a licence to produce massive quantities of wine during the Prohibition era, which he then sold on the black market. Oh, is it... So if you were Catholic, you could produce wine for If you were a Christian religious sect, you were allowed to produce wine specifically for communion. That's brilliant. And he figured that out, came up with this bullshit Royal Order of Tibet thing and said, we're a Christian church. Did it take off as... Did he have followers, though? Yeah, yeah, of course. You always get a few people. Yeah. He he had, but it was all just like a front. He wasn't like a cult leader so much as he was a guy who had an a idea. Businessman. Pre- yeah, he was a businessman who just had to pretend to be a priest in order that people would allow him to just sell shit tons of wine. Well, not al- allow him to produce. He was not supposed to be selling it. Yeah. Definitely not supposed to be selling it. But what I'm trying to say is he was a very trustworthy man, George Adamski, when yeah. it come down to it. Naturally, once Prohibition ended in 1933, George was looking for a new scam. He bought some land at the foot of a mountain called Palama and began lecturing on Eastern philosophy. Because at this point, it seemed he, he was switching over to just trying to start his own cult. Yeah, because he enjoyed like, it. I've lost the wine thing, but it's quite nice having people believing that I'm a conduit to God and just doing as I say. And I'm, I'm guessing the people who did follow his religious order of Tibet, he got them working... For relatively no wages to produce the wine. Yeah, and they're all pissed. Yeah. Just like, yeah, maybe we can start touching each other because that's where they always go with cults. Yeah. Maybe I can touch your wife. What Because do you, what do you... God said it's okay because I'm, I'm the leader. I need to touch everyone's wives to make them clean. It always goes that way. Mm, it does. Yeah. Even when they start out with the, the purest motives, eventually it's like, I'm sure I could manipulate this into having more sex. Uh, uh, no, I was thinking of somebody else. They're all about the same. Didn't Gandhi test himself? I don't know. He would. He was celibate, wasn't he? Mm. So well, he test himself so what? He'd go to a, like a. No, he'd like lie with young women. Oh, just next to them. Yeah, sort of test his faith, I suppose. Okay. Yeah. That would be Seems a creepy strange. situation. Yeah. yeah. So you're you're lying there with this big sort of internationally known leader, mm. and he's lying there with a visible erection. His loincloth is now a pop-up tent. <laughs> yeah, just just looking at you, and you can see the pain in his eyes. Yeah. And you can see his hand just sort of shaking. Shame. Oh, bless him. Why would you... It, celibacy, fine, but don't put those things... I mean, isn't that sort of like addiction 101? Try and avoid putting yourself in the path of the thing that you're, you know, trying to avoid. At first, but you get a few stages through. All right, and then it... That seems a bit... And then you're just in a poppy field. <laughs> yeah, breathing heavily. Oh, God. <laughs> Why am I here? <laughs> I can do this! Now, nah, I, I don't know enough about Gandhi to, to be able to say that. I've not studied him. No. But, I mean, it might did, be did he actually place. manage to... This this person who may or may not have been Gandhi, did they manage to maintain the celibacy? Or did this end in, like, coming coming in and going, actually, I've received a new message <laughs> saying that I've passed the test and now I will be rewarded by being able to do all of the touching and rubbing. You get round it some way by legally declaring that your penis is another 
entity. <laughs> his own person. I, I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> I am celibate. I can't speak for him. For my yeah. conjoined twin. <laughs> oh, God, we've really... Yeah. This is very early to have gone on such a tangent, to be fair. What would you call your penis if you were Gandhi? I'm, I'm not taking you up on that. <laughs> oh, God. Grandy? No. All the pieces are there, Josh. <laughs> if at some point it comes up, just shout it and totally derail the show again. So, yeah, he was trying to start a cult at this point. He bought the land at the bottom of a mountain. He was preaching a sort of mishmash of Eastern philosophy, which was still very new in America at the time, so it had that kind of... Um, you know, appeal to people who were looking for a bit disillusioned with Christianity, looking for something a bit new. So it's sort of like the precursor to the sort of hippie movement. He also bought himself a telescope and he began allowing people to think that he must have something to do with the observatory that was situated on the top of Mount Palomar. This was mainly because he liked it when people erroneously referred to him as Professor Adamski. Oh, the prof. This is like, oh, you've got a telescope, I see. Are you with the observatory? Yes, there's an observatory at the top of my mountain, yes. Oh, so you must run the observatory. Well, the observatory is at the top of the mountain that I live live at, yes. And he's just never corrected anyone. Oh, it's near. It's near, and I also own a telescope, and I do look at the stars. I spend a lot of time looking at the stars. Okay. That's great, isn't it? Yeah. They, they do the lie in their own head. Yeah. I never <laughs> said that. I just didn't correct you for the past ten years. In 1946, because it was over 10 years, in 1946, Adamski, seeing the interest in UFOs that was taking the country by storm, made claims that he had seen a cigar-shaped alien craft. After Roswell made national news, Adamski started producing photos that he claimed showed the alien craft that could often be seen flying over his land. Though, to be fair, there were some people who questioned why if he was seeing these things regularly... The massive observatory that was less than 10 miles away never reported any alien craft. So he knows where to look. All oh, right, okay. So they're just always outside of the cone of vision of the observatory and all the people who work there. They never see anything. Um, he once claimed, to test that theory, that 184 ships had passed overhead in a single night. So the observatory had missed all 184 alien craft. It's like a flotilla of alien craft just flying over the top. How would you argue way out of that? Well, I suppose the the, the big telescope on top mm. of the mountain. Yeah. It's seeing just a tiny segment of the night sky mm. in grand detail. Yeah. Whereas he's got a shitty telescope that's sort of like... So he's seen the ten breadth, times, not the depth. Yeah, oh, okay. magnification. So he's, he's getting more information, but not as much detail. Mm. If I'm being fair, I think he was just really... I think he's lying. <laughs> he, he was just grossly misidentifying clouds. Every yeah. time he sees a cloud, it's another alien craft! Like it's he's, 118 already. Yeah, he's just sat out there, just looking up, and every time a cloud scuds across the sky, he's like, there's another one! There's <laughs> another one! Bless him. Maybe he's just a very simple man. He drank too much of his own wine and got high on his idea of being a god. Mm. I would. Yeah. Oh, if people are constantly validating you being like a... You have six months of feeling awkward about it. Yeah, and it's like, maybe I am God. Everyone's saying it. Yeah. And they keep keep staying with me, even yeah. though the, the food's... Even though I'm not doing anything. Worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they keep saying that I've performed a miracle. I haven't done anything. In 1952, Adamski was apparently sought out by an alien from Venus called Orthon. 
Oh, they've always, yeah, it's always the same sort of names. Who communicated with him via telepathy. Mm. This encounter became the subject of a book he wrote called Flying Saucers of Landed, which became a bestseller. Adamski continued meeting aliens and profiting off book sales for the rest of his life. So the cult kind of fell by the wayside at this point because he realised, actually... I'm an author. I'm an author. It's a steadier income and I keep getting invited because he was invited to all the sort of burgeoning UFO... Um, Ufologists. Ufologists, yeah. It's like he was a big draw, so they'd be like, we'll pay for your flights and we'll put you up in a nice hotel and then there'll be loads of people who just think you're terrific and want to listen to you tell your bullshit stories. It was a lot easier before the internet mm. to get away with shit like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because you, you are just mixing in the circles. If you can choose to, to live like that. Yeah, yeah. It's just the people that need to know. No one, no one else is going to crash that party and, and sort of question how verifiable your your data sets are it's just well here's here's a graph that i've done on an overhead projector yeah and as you can see this says that i am telling the truth and the aliens are real and i talk to them with my mind and everyone just applauds nicely and then goes off and they have no way of you know checking against what you'd said because they don't have a copy of your data yeah yeah he said something it sounded very convincing at the time so yeah while it is easy to be cynical about Adamski, and I think I am quite cynical about him. Sorry, before this episode, you said it would be about crop yields. Yeah, I lied. It's so, about aliens. Oh, right. So I've been trying to make the link. So, so you've I, been well, going I to thought, crop circles. Well, you're in America, so we need to get to England. So I thought you were going to say, you're going to, yeah, crop circles. Mm. And that would link us to crop yields in Tudor Britain. Yeah, because they reported the first aliens. Yeah. No, no, it was a red herring. And while it's easy to be cynical about Adamski and about myself and the things I tell you, two years later, there was another person who claimed to have met an alien. This person did not have a history of grifting and, more importantly for our podcast, he was British. Mm. Hubbard. Because Cedric Allingham was born in Bombay on June 27th, 1922. As the son of a wealthy British textile manufacturer, he experienced a globe-trotting childhood. He was privately educated until the age of 10 by the finest tutors that money could buy. Then, when his father retired and bought a home in Durban, South Africa, Cedric was enrolled in an exclusive grammar school before finally being sent to England to finish his education. However, the changing climate obviously didn't agree with him because in 1939, at the age of 17, he left England again for a sanitarium in Switzerland where he spent the next two years. I think what a sanitarium is. Um, It's just any hospital for a long-term chronic illness. In this case, um, it was his lungs. So uh, there's kind of a a link between the word sanitarium and, and insanity, but not every hospital that was a sanitarium was for mental illness. This was a physical ailment. They had a chronic lung condition. Um, So when he was finally deemed fit, after two years from this chronic lung condition, he immediately did the most sensible thing in the world. It's 1941. He enlisted in the army to fight the Nazi menace. Yeah. Which is is grand. I mean, I understand, you know, you're caught up in the fervour of wanting to be patriotic, but it left the British army with a problem of where do you put a very keen but sickly young man with a chronic lung condition, you know, so that he's not a liability. He's in the army. He's in the army, he's yeah. The they're, they're, they're not going to take him in the Air Force. Right. At the back? 
at the back. Good, good choice. Out of the way, maybe in the offices. Mm. Does he do the? Does he write to parents? No, the mothers. Oh, that 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 must be a harrowing job. What's your job? Writing the obituaries and the uh, the notices to parents. Yeah. Just so many. Yeah. No, luckily he didn't have that job. Eventually, Cedric was sent to the hot and dry climate of the Middle East because he figured he was living in South Africa. Things were going well. It's quite a dry place. Mm-hmm. Moved to England, wet, cold, clammy. Put him in the desert. Yeah, put him back in the desert. Maybe his lungs will clear up. So I think it's quite reasonable. I think it was quite nice, really. According to Cedric, his position as part of the Royal Army Ordnance Corps didn't place him in any danger at any point during the war. It was tank battles in Africa, wasn't it? It was, yeah. But yeah. he wasn't taking part in any battles. He was part of the Ordnance Corps. He was essentially... Um, the like, map reader. Yeah, he was a meteorologist is what he was, essentially. He was yeah. taking reports. Uh, but it, Hot and sunny. Yeah, he wasn't in any danger. And, yeah, it didn't I'll take up... put that for the rest of the week. Didn't take up much of his time. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up, look up. Yep, still no clouds. Um, 45 degrees. Speaking to some locals, they say, yeah, it's pretty much this for the next six months. Um, I'm just going to knock off. Yeah. And with time on his hands and finding it was too hot for him to sleep at night, really just that dry kind of never-ending heat, mm. uh, he took up amateur astronomy. He's got nothing to do. Yeah, he, well, he's kept awake at night. Yeah, does nothing in the day. Yeah, Greatly benefiting from the fact that he was apparently hundreds of miles away from any significant signs of human civilization. Um, so it was perfect viewing. Yeah. And, when, you know, he was a meteorologist of a, an area of desert where basically it was like, well, we may have to fight a tank battle there in the future, so we may as well sort of get a lie of the land. And you're going to be that man, yeah. that forward scout in the middle of nowhere who we may call upon but probably won't. Uh, he ended up learning all of the constellations that he could. He was, he was quite enjoying it, actually. Yeah. He started getting his logbook and writing down everything each night. But that didn't take up all of his time. You know, and it's mainly a nighttime activity, astronomy, as I'm sure you're aware. So what's he going to do in the day, Joe? Well, that's a good question. He began writing pulpy thriller novels oh. of questionable quality. And when I say questionable quality, I mean I could not find even a single copy of one of his thrillers. So they were all pulped many years ago. These things weren't the kind of thing that you'd save for posterity. It's the kind of thing you'd read, immediately forget, but it passed an hour. Is that where pulp fiction comes from? Yeah, yeah. Just shit fiction that gets pulped? Yeah. Just put that together. Mm. Thanks, Joe. No worries. Luckily, the saleability of his books would never become a serious issue for him because in March 1945, only a few months before the Germans surrendered, a ship carrying Cedric's parents was sunk in a U-boat attack. And as their only child, Cedric received a sizeable inheritance, which meant that he would never actually need to work another day in his life. Yeah. It's like, oh, God, what am I going to do when this war ends? Thank Christ! <laughs> Cha-ching! <laughs> well, I'm immediately dissolving all my dad's businesses to realise the assets. It's like you're crying on one side of your face. Yeah. You look like a two-face from Batman. <laughs> one in Yay! a smile, one in a... <laughs> it's so sad that I've got financial security for the rest of my life. Yeah. Now, naturally, with the war over and having resigned from the army... Cedric made the decision to return to England, the country that had nearly killed him. He's stronger now. Well, 
yeah, but that's because he's been in the climate that's apparently his body's designed for. <laughs> he's like, I'm sure this time nothing will go wrong. Even better, though, this time he moved to the centre of London, which was still experiencing regular smogs. Mm. Now, smog, for people who don't know, was it's a mixture of... Of coal, smoke and fog. Yeah, it was fog and pollution, essentially. Yeah. So all of the pollutants that would normally dissipate into the atmosphere because of the fog, they would kind of get captured and held down near ground level for long periods of time. Of course, Londoners sort of liked them or yeah. took ownership of them. You know, it may be pollution just being held. But given atmosphere. Yeah, it gave, it gave London its own field. Cr- crafty crimes. Mm. Well, they affectionately referred to them as pea supers. Mm. Uh, They were not just great cover for serial killers or any manner of crime you'd like to try, but they could also be deadly all of their own account. A perfect example of this was the Great Smog of 1952, when a freak weather pattern resulted in five days of near-zero visibility across London from December 5th to December 9th. Wow. So, the period of time we're in now. Wait a sec. Because we're in December. But inside you could see. I know that sounds like a stupid... Well, in in your house, yes, so long as you didn't... I'm just thinking the smoke aspect of it. Mm. Mm. It it wouldn't be a pleasant place to be. Everything would feel very claustrophobic. If you left (laughs) a window open, you're blind. And the other thing that was really weird about it is apparently it deadened all the sound. So if you were walking out on the street, it was so bad that you couldn't even see your own feet. But also, you couldn't even hear the echo of your steps it was just like everything was deadened so it felt like you were on your own in the middle of a city and people would just sort of emerge out of this fog past you and then immediately all sign of them would vanish there's this really eerie kind of situation you could literally get away with anything yeah people did you wouldn't know where you are to do it though (laughs) well you know if you wanted to murder your neighbor because they they're so noisy putting the bins out mm. you you wouldn't be able to to locate them them. yeah you couldn't find them to do it Listening for them. It's like, oh, God, God damn it. It's both the perfect cover and makes this so difficult. (laughs) (laughs) I want to murder. Well, this particular great smog, it also resulted in the deaths of up to, it's estimated, 12,000 Londoners. Shit. Yeah. From accidents and... Well, some of it will be from accidents, but some of it's just from the fact that you're... You know, what it's doing is it's holding this pollution, so you're just breathing all of that sort of chemical, all of that smoke, all of that, just in and out, in and out. There's no respite from it for five days. That's all you're breathing when you go to sleep, when you wake up, wherever you are, you can't get out of it. And if you already had a lung condition or you were compromised... Oh, Joe, it sounds like hell. mm. Somehow, Cedric, who was in London at the time, was not one of the casualties. (laughs) So his lungs obviously had got better out in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, however, following another dirty London Christmas in 1953, he decided that he needed to spend some time in a slightly less polluted environment. So he hitched up his caravan. <laughs> He's living in a caravan? He, no, he he owns a caravan as well. Oh, fancy. He has a, he has a townhouse in London and a caravan. <laughs> uh, and he drove north. Horse-drawn? No, no, he had a car. He's got a... He's got a little caravan on the back of his car. He's got a little caravan on the back of his 1950s car, yes. That's wonderful. Uh, Probably with wood panelling down the side of the car or something, yeah. Teak. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And drove north to Scotland in the February of 1954 in the hopes of indulging in a bit of bird watching while clearing the black sludge out of his lungs. Because 
he, he just liked watching things through um, binoculars, through telescopes, anything. If he could watch it through a set of, you know, augmented lenses to help improve his magnification, he's down with that. Right. Mm. Peep shows. Yeah, he loved a peep show, probably. Yeah. When I said dirty Christmas, I wasn't referring to the smog. <laughs> this time it was just pure smut. <laughs> Cedric was planning to eventually make it all the way up to Wick. However, the events of February the 18th, 1954, ensured that he would never complete that trip. <gasps> because that was the day that Cedric Allingham met an alien. Oh, shit. Cedric reported that he was walking on the coast between Lossiemouth and the River Spey Estuary at around midday, in an area that is now a nature reserve. So it's nice and rugged, I'm assuming, very beautiful vistas out over the, you know, headlands and things. And we know Lossiemouth is uh, home to some military sites, so it sort of fits in with that idea that aliens, alien sightings tend to cluster around military installations, which... Kind of makes sense if they're checking up on how destructive we're being or how advanced we are, because generally the most advanced tech is going to be owned by the military. That's where it's all tested and yeah. all the innovation comes. So the fact that Cedric didn't realise this, this trope hadn't really become a thing yet in the 50s, and he just so happened to be at Lossy Mouth, adds a bit of weight to his story, I feel. Has he shown any no interest in aliens? No, no. So that give, that's a tick for being genuine. Mm, I think so. Um, so he's walking through this, what is now a nature reserve. It was still bitterly cold as it was February, so Cedric didn't pass many people on the trail. He remembered that the last person he had nodded hello to had passed him at around 12.25 because he definitely took the time to check his watch 10 minutes later when he saw something in the sky that was not a bird. Mm. And he's a, he's a, you know an amateur ornithologist as well, so he knows. He looked up at it and he went, I can confidently state that is not a bird. There was no engine noise, but looking through his binoculars, Cedric was certain that he was looking at some kind of craft about 5,000 feet overhead. And this is what he said. It glinted in the sunlight, giving every impression that it was made of metal. Since it was tipped at a slight angle, the upper dome and spherical landing gear were perfectly clear. Cedric tried to take some photos, but these proved to be awful. He also tried sketching the craft. But that also proved to be terrible. <laughs> he didn't have the skills. Yeah. The UFO <laughs> then abruptly shot off in a northerly direction. So he's like, thank God I've got my camera. Oh, they always shit. piss off like they've been rumbled. <laughs> yeah. So, Just hanging out for 20 minutes. That click of a little old oh, Kodak shit. camera. Ah! Yeah, yeah. And away they go. It was the sound of him scraping with his pencil on a sheet of paper. Like, like a deer just startled. In the headlights and off it went. Are, they, are, they, are these not all blimps? Well, it's shot off. That's the thing, I think. If it's going at speed, it's probably not a blimp. So he's saying it was hanging there and then whoosh, really rapid and no sort of lead up to it. It's like it wasn't moving, then it was moving at speed. It's that rapid acceleration as well. Now, Cedric, he waited for half an hour to see if it had come back, but it didn't return. So carried on, carried on with his morning walk. <laughs> that was weird. Mm. Uh, though now... His eyes were fixed firmly on the horizon in case the craft should return. So he's he's carrying on with his walk, but you feel like his heart's not in it anymore. He's distracted. He he's just hoping that if he hangs around out on the sort of coastal path for long enough, yeah, he might he might get a, another chance to take a photo. And he's doing that trick of like, oh no, I'm looking at the trees. Yeah, if I look over here, I don't here, even care. Yeah. Oh, oh, look at that interesting rock on the floor. Maybe if I stare at that rock for a while, yeah, and then just happen to glance up, yeah. 
<laughs> be coy um, with it. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't looking at you. Are you are you looking at me? Sexy craft. Um, he lost track of time because you will do when you when you're desperately trying not to show interest in something. And it was three forty in the afternoon before he realised that he best turn back or he would miss his dinner reservation back in Lossy Mouth. Mm. Then suddenly, the UFO was back in the sky and heading toward him. According to Cedric, it landed only a few hundred feet from him. He tried taking some more photos of the craft that he described as being around 50 feet across, but even from this relatively close distance, he was unable to take a shot that didn't come out as a blurred mess. (laughs) (laughs) So he's either shaking in fear, excitement and everything else. Yeah. Just adrenaline. Yeah. Or he's making this up. Or he's just incredibly bad at taking photographs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I'm guessing, you know, this was still a time when a lot of the sort of... You had to set everything. You know, you had to sort of twist the dials and do the apertures and stuff. Because this is the 50s. You didn't have automatic anything at this point. Luckily, though, the lack of a good picture of the craft wouldn't matter. Because when Cedric was walking closer, the craft opened. A sliding panel in the lower part moved back, and a man leapt lightly and gracefully to the ground. As he advanced to meet me, I raised my arm in salute. He did the same. And then for a while, we stood, staring at each other. The alien was described by Cedric as looking very much like a human. Six foot tall, brown hair, and skin that appeared to have a deep tan. The only signs that he is wasn't... It, is it him? <clears throat> is he looking at a reflection... In a pool of in water. In a lock. I mean, it it doesn't sound It's very mimicking alien. his his hand movements. And Which now means just, it has a hand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a humanoid. We both saluted at the same time, then stood there. The only, the only sign that he wasn't um, a human, aside from the obvious fact that he just jumped out of a spaceship was that he was wearing a onesie-style spacesuit that was described as being made of something that appeared to be like very finely woven black chainmail, and that he had tubes coming out of each nostril, which Cedric assumed later were to help him manage the different gas mix of Earth's atmosphere. Okay. So he's wearing a black chainmail onesie... With straws with, out of his With nose. straws sticking out of his nose. Otherwise, perfectly human-looking, although he's been on, you know, the tan and be- the sunbeds. Well, if I was an alien, mm. I would change um, my appearance. If you could. No, I have the technology to do that. Oh, you... To adapt my appearance so that um, new life forms aren't so scared of me. Okay. Um, I can't change the straws because... You need those. They have a purpose, yeah. Mm. Um, so you think it's like a glamour, like I'm, I'm changing the way that you perceive me yeah. so that you don't immediately scream and throw yeah, up. and then mimic every action that the being I'm talking to is Well, I guess that's, that's 101 with if you can't speak the language, you, you just, sort of try to, yeah, try to mimic what they're doing to show, I'm, I'm trying to communicate. It's, look, I'm... I can follow what you're doing. Now, can we can we take this to the next step? And take it to the next step, they will. Oh, no. Because while many alien abductees describe communication directly via telepathy with their alien abductors, this was not the case for Cedric. He'd made his new alien friend, but they were going to have to work hard to communicate old school styles. Through a series of mimes and scribbled diagrams, mm. 
And as Cedric is English, we can assume a lot of talking very slowly and very loudly at the alien. Cedric was able to confirm that the alien was, in fact, a Martian. Uh Audaciously, considering they could not communicate effectively, Cedric tried to ask the alien to explain how the engines on his ship worked. Fucking hell, out of all the questions. Via mime and scribble diagrams, not text, just drawings. And we know that he can't even draw a classic sort of UFO flying saucer accurately. So the idea that he could ask that question... I mean, I understand, like, the Martian part, because mm. he could well, point he, to the direction of no, Mars. No, he drew, he drew the solar system, like the planets in order, and he pointed to Earth, mm. and then the alien pointed to Mars. And then pointed to himself. Yeah. And then nodded. So, yeah, the so they got that. Yeah. That was, that's quite an easy one, because it's like, you know, but saying... Just starting with such an open question as to how do you, how does your technology work? How's your engines? Work? So he draws the ship. Yeah, and then and what, then he, like lines coming out of it and going, and then it, yeah, he just points and he goes, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, how would you answer that? In just you've got to assume the technology that's got you from Mars to Earth. It's like all oh, right, just you, scribbling it on the back of your notebook. I'm going to explain that. How you go. <laughs> What I'm saying is he never got an answer yeah. to that particular question. However, the alien was able to get across his big question to Cedric, which was essentially... Can I bed you? <laughs> I feel like it's going to go. No, no. It's going to get probed. Is humanity... Are six humans Spanish man. <laughs> <laughs> it was more... Are humans gearing up for another major war? Cedric, rather honestly, I think, he, he offered a shrug... I understand the question somehow. Yeah, but I don't think I'm the person who can answer that. I'm a sickly amateur astronomer from London who was decommissioned, demobbed from the army. (laughs) I'm lost in Scotland. Yeah, over half a decade ago. Um, I've been walking in one direction for four hours. (laughs) I'm not quite sure I'm going to get home. It's February (laughs) and it's quarter past three. Yeah. And the light is failing. After this conversation, it's four o'clock and the sun's going down in two hours. He's not getting back for that reservation. No, he's he's going to have to jog briskly just to beat beat the cold. <laughs> Get in before he freezes. But the shrug must have been a very expressive shrug mm-hmm. because apparently it left the alien looking serious and troubled. Ooh. He looked, he sort of glanced off to one side and said, like, oh. Though, to be fair, expecting a random bloke on a hike to give a clear and accurate answer seems a bad way to monitor the threat level across an entire planet. Because, mm. I mean, he's saying a major human conflict. It's like, what did Cedric know about the, the situation in Africa, the situation in America at the time? You're asking a random bloke in Scotland. A few words were then attempted during the meeting. And from this, we can know for certainty that the Martian word that is equivalent to yes is likely to be The Martian word that's likely to mean yes is pronounced in Martian as this was the answer he gave when Cedric, uh, via the diagram of the solar system, asked if the Martian had been to Venus and met the people who were living there. Because, you know, obviously, if people are living on Mars, there's probably people living on Venus as well. And it's um, people from Venus that Adamski claimed that he'd met. The year before. The Martian then used the same diagram to ask if humans were planning on trying to get to the moon anytime soon. When Cedric answered yes to this question, the Martian again looked troubled. Oh no. They're spreading. That's like the Martian pantry. 
Yeah. So they keep their preserves. <laughs> like, no, that's ours. Next, they're going to be on Mars. That's what he's worrying about. It's like, yeah. next, they're going to be coming to us and they're going to be offering us some blankets. Next thing you know, we've all got smallpox and they're moving us onto reservations. And it's just, we know how this this rolls. Mm. We know, we've, we've studied your history, you bastards. That was pretty much the end of the meeting, though. As the Martian walked back to his ship, Cedric tried to take a picture. But again... It's perfect. When it was, when it was developed, it turned out to be a blurred mess. You can see the picture. It's available. It looks, for all the world, like a man in black walking. Ah. Is he... I it's just, a very blurry shot of a man in a, a black outfit walking. No, no, no. He didn't think to take it with the, the spaceship in frame. It's just a picture of a man walking in Scotland in black. I bet all the other photos from that walk are... Absolutely pristine. Yeah, anyone that's not Martian related. Yeah, he's got a black-throated reed warbler yeah. from 50 foot perfectly Some with a Sc- telephoto Scottish lens. Scottish cross bill. <laughs> so, oh, my God, yeah, he entered those in an H thing. So, but humans, they're just so hard to photograph. Yeah. Who, who would ever photograph a human? Well, not even human. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry, Martian. The Martian's scrambling his film stock. Could do, couldn't they? They yeah. could have some kind of uh, technology that's like, you, you can't... <clears throat> you can't actually take a photo of us i really thought he was gonna get probed no no this was a very friendly encounter all told like he just keeps going down the solar system planets and just keeps pointing at uranus apparently just like that. This... <laughs> <laughs> uranus <laughs> oh i thought we were going to get through this without a uranus joke yeah it's just obvious, isn't it? Yeah, it's the Futurama one. We've renamed that to stop that old joke. What's it called now? Erectum. <laughs> <laughs> now, I didn't write this down in the in the um, episode notes, but apparently as the alien walked off and he'd taken his photo, he tried to follow him in the hopes that he'd just sort of let him have a look in. And the alien had to turn around and sort of put out his hand and be like, no, Cedric. Just smush his face. Yeah. And he's like... I can go yeah. in, pointing at the inside of the ship, and he's just like, no, I'm not wanting you on my ship. You're a dirty human. You can stay off. And he got into a bit of a standoff where every time the alien took a step towards the ship, Cedric took a step. Like, no, you stay. You stay. Good boy. Glim glop. I don't know what the opposite of ooh is. Ah. <laughs> Always getting hungry. It's just that aggressive noise. <laughs> well, that's what I do to the cats. I don't use words. I'm just like, mm. they seem to get that. It's a similar sort of dynamic. Anyway, eventually he had to give up and realise he wasn't going to get to go in and look at the engines or any of the, mm. the interior of the ship. And he watched the Martian spaceship fly off to the north. Then he checked his watch again. The whole meeting had taken place in the span of less than half an hour. Cedric immediately asked himself the age-old question that anyone who's met an alien asks. Am I high? (laughs) The second question, then. Do I tell anyone? Because I'm likely to have the piss taken out of me if I do. So do do I believe that this is so important that I share this message? I feel like he's gonna. Mm. Well, probably because I'm talking about it now. But Fortunately, though, as he was walking back, he passed the same bloke from earlier in the afternoon who confirmed that he too had seen the flying saucer and that he would be willing to sign a statement to that effect. The man was called James Duncan and he was a local fisherman. So he had no vested interest in... Yeah, neither of them do. <clears throat> so it, it, it sort of adds to the weight of the claim. Because um, 
he's got I forgot our protagonist protagonist Cedric 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 doesn't need the money he's got enough money mm. he's got he's not, there's no real motive for him to make this mm. up at this point yeah, he's got, not had a history of trying to um, he's not a narcissistic personality like Adamski was it wasn't all about him he wasn't known to manipulate people yeah. I'm kind of believing this mm. well he waited a few more days around Lossy Mouth to see if his Martian friend would return that guy's never coming back no <laughs> he doesn't want to be friends no he realised he'd made a mistake stopping a random person yeah, yeah. on the Scottish coast. He's like, I'm going to go back, I'm going to have a think, and I'm going to go somewhere maybe where they've got a bit more of a finger on the pulse of um, um, political sort of machinations. But he waited anyway, just to see, <clears throat> uh, before heading back to London to get his pictures developed. And despite the poor quality of them... Oh, no! <laughs> They're all blurry. He for some reason. He still felt that they provided sufficient evidence for him to publish a book on his encounter. Mm. Though I would hardly say that Cedric was confident. Because the eventual book, Flying Saucer from Mars, when it was published in October 1954, it was 164 pages long. It's not a long book. Uh, Cedric he spends the first 104 of those pages providing a history of the flying saucer phenomenon in an effort to suggest that his experience was less of an anomaly and more like an inevitability considering the amount of spaceships apparently skidding around through our atmosphere at any given moment so 104 pages of this 164 page book is him setting the scene to go this is why you should believe my yeah, story yeah this is why i'm not a crank these are the verifiable, is, this is reports from the American army, this is reports from, you know, astronomers, this is reports from people who have authority and have, have put forth these opinions. The report of his encounter itself is less than 30 pages long, with the remainder of the book taken up trying to justify the reason his photographs are a bit rubbish. Nevertheless, <laughs> it became a bestseller. And Cedric was asked to give lectures on his experience by a UFO group in Tunbridge Wells, at which former Air Chief Marshal of the RAF during World War Two and prominent UFO believer Lord Dowding was present. So the guy who ran the RAF during World War Two, the guy who was in charge, operationally in charge of our last line of defence against Nazis when they were trying to invade, believed wholeheartedly in aliens. Are you dismissing that it's been any UFOs in, to, to your mind? I'm, I'm, yes, I guess I am because, I, like I say, I believe in the concept of aliens existing somewhere in the universe. I think the likelihood of it being close enough for us to ever engage with them is much, much more unlikely. Hmm. I mean, it may be, but all I'm saying is that Air Marshal Lord Dowding a member of the House of Lords, somebody who was able to sort of influence legislation, he believed in UFOs and he was open about it that he would, you know, go to these UFO meetings openly. He wouldn't, like, hide who he was. Doesn't that add credibility? Mm -mm. Well, I think it does because Lord Dowding himself, talking about Cedric's speech, said, We got Mr Cedric Allingham to lecture at our local Flying Saucer Club and we were all strongly impressed that he was telling the truth about his actual experiences although we felt that he might have been mistaken in some of the conclusions which he drew from his interview. Yeah. <laughs> so like, we totally believe it happened. We're not sure he was quite as good an interpreter of aliens as he, he thought he was. I mean, he chatted to a, a man. Yeah. 
that's the problem for me that it's completely humanoid with two straws mm. but he did come out of a flying saucer and then left from the same flying saucer it wasn't like he went yes I've left my flying saucer in the woods I must go now do not follow me bye you know that he saw the flying saucer yeah. it, he saw it take off he saw it land and somebody else signed a you know a statement saying that they also saw the same thing although James Duncan never in his statement said that he saw the craft land he said he saw it going down but it was sort of over a hill I mean you could easily pay off a poor Scottish fisherman who's the, wandering about instead of fishing the unimpeachable, on a weekday they're unimpeachable in the honesty of Scottish fishermen while on the south coast of England Cedric also bumped into and had rather a nice chat with Sir Patrick Moore Oh, God. Back to him. At least that's what Sir Patrick said. Oh, yes, I met, Sir, I met Cedric <laughs> Allium. Yeah, it's a lovely bloke. This is part two of our podcast, Patrick the Lie. But chances for further meetings would need to be delayed as Cedric was planning a trip to America to meet George Adamski and to conduct a study of the American alien encounters. This was presumably because his UFO book had immediately outsold all of his other books, all of his pulpy fiction. Uh, so he was looking to complete a follow-up. So he'd written about his experience, and now as a fellow alien, you know, survivor. I don't know if survivor's the right word. He hadn't been menaced by the alien, but you know what I mean. Yeah, they all seem quite nice. Yeah. As somebody who has also had an alien experience, he wanted to go and interview other people who'd had similar experiences to compare notes and thinking it would be nice to sort of add to the body of work. However, some people were more sceptical of Cedric's claims than Lord Dowding and his club. This included writer Robert Chapman. He tried to contract Cedric via Cedric's publisher, but was told that he was in California, so could not be reached directly. Though he would pass on a letter for Cedric. So, well, you know, we don't actually know where he's going to be. He's in California, which is quite a big state, and he's dotting around here, there, and everywhere, just chasing up on leads. So he may be in a small town in the middle of the desert, or you know, he might be on the high plains or something. We don't know. So I'll get a letter to this, the hotel he started at in California and hopefully it'll eventually catch up to him and he'll respond when he can. Robert sent the letter uh, and then he headed to Lossiemouth to locate James Duncan. Because if you can't find Cedric, you can find the other guy who's sort of the other pillar to this story holding it up. He found, much to his surprise, that there was no fisherman operating out of Lossiemouth Harbour by the name James Duncan. Mm. His suspicions growing he contacted the publishers again, only to be told that Cedric had had to fly from California to Switzerland following a flare-up of his lung condition. So he had to go back to the sanitarium. Robert saw this as a perfect opportunity to corner Cedric because while he wasn't going to travel across to America, to the west coast of America, to, to ask his questions, Switzerland's a relative hop, skip and a jump. You know, yeah, you can make accessible. that. Yeah, Jump on the train, get to the ferry, across you go. You're straight there. Two days, most. In relative comfort as well. Ah, oh, back when trains were romantic and Especially didn't smell of piss. Unfortunately, sadly, before he could even book a hotel... No. Robert was informed that Cedric had passed away. And so he would not be available for an interview for the foreseeable future. Mm. All those dreams of a follow-up book gone. Young life cut short. Is he dead? Well, the thing is, was one it of the, it was the pressure of being caught as a liar. 
Well, he, he he hadn't been caught. As far as Cedric, Cedric was unaware that someone was looking for him because he'd never received the letter because that had oh. been sent to America and he'd come back to Switzerland. Oh. But one of the things that are reported in a lot of alien encounters are that there will be health effects to the um, the, the person who encountered the alien in the future. So there's reports of higher instances of cancers and tumours. and like radiation. And yeah, gym. that kind of thing for people who've been too close to aliens and cedric was somebody who had a pre-existing chronic condition so it may have been that actually being it's a good job he didn't go on the ship or he would have dropped dead immediately but as it was that exposure to whatever the alien was or whatever the ship had may have you know had that effect of a slow sort of death by radiation poisoning Possibly. I'm just speculating. Do we know what he died of? Uh, it, it was apparently uh, exacerbation of the lung. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lungs. <laughs> Breathing became too difficult to do. Oh. And so he stopped, which was a misstep in, in his pursuit of living. <laughs> the question of the validity of the book will continue for the next 30 years with some people arguing that Cedric had provided an honest account, while others considered the entire thing to be a big hoax, to cynically make some money out of poor idiots like Lord Dowding, again, the chief air marshal of the RAF <laughs> during World War Two, Sucker. Yeah. Because he, he went for it, hook, line and sinker. He bought a copy of the book, got it signed, loved it. He made at least £1.30 off him. <laughs> then. Yeah. With the case seemingly cold forever... No one will ever be able to tell one way or the other whether Cedric was telling the truth or whether he was a dirty liar. In 1986, a pair of researchers called Christopher Allen and Stuart Campbell published an article in the sceptical Fortean journal Magna... In the sceptical Fortean journal Magonia. Magnolia. Magonia. They published an article in a journal. Okay. The title of their article, which is much easier to pronounce than the name of the freaking <laughs> journal it was in, Flying Saucer from Moors, because they argued that the prose of Allingham's book showed significant similarities to the writings of one Sir Patrick Moore. They had managed to confirm via Allingham's publisher that a friend of Moore named Peter Davies had actually co-written the book with another individual who he declined to name. Davies also confirmed that the talk at the UFO club given by Allingham had in fact been himself, Peter Davies, wearing a false moustache, as Cedric Allingham had never existed. Oh, wow. He was a made-up person. Moore had previously admitted to being invited by Lord Dowding to be a guest at this meeting as well. Because Moore would write all his shit fiction, wouldn't he? Oh, he loved a bit of yeah, um, yeah. science fiction, yeah. Finally, it was confirmed that the picture of Allingham, which again was Peter in a moustache, uh, used in the book, was taken alongside one of Patrick Moore's own telescopes in Patrick's back garden. Oh my God. These and other clues, although that seems pretty... Yeah, it's uh, enough, isn't it? Well, it's written exactly like one of Sir Patrick Moore's books. Sir Patrick Moore's mate admits that he co-wrote the book and won't say who it was... But Patrick was at the talk that he gave as a special guest. Hmm. But these and other clues led Alan and Campbell to identify Patrick Moore as the main culprit in the hoax. Oh, my God. Which was intended to expose the gullibility and uncritical research methods of British ufologists. 
Naturally, though, even though he'd been caught out, Patrick Moore never admitted that he had written Flying Saucer from Mars, because he was never a man to let reality get in the way of a good story. And that is the story of one of the first and most enduring UFO hoaxes in British history. And a surprise part two to Sir Patrick Moore. (laughs) The liar. The liar. (laughs) And the source, naturally, was Flying Saucer from Mars by Sir Patrick Moore and Pete Davies. Under the pen name, Cedric Allingham. That's amazing. Isn't it just... give it the backstory as well. Oh, yeah. And the, the, the backstory, even today... You will go and see um, on various book websites where they will just... They have him listed as an author, Cedric Allingham, with his backstory and his blurb, and there's no mention of the fact that actually he never existed (laughs) and there's no records of him. So they went to the army and they couldn't find records of this guy who's posted where where they said he was posted or who did any of the things. So it was just every stage when these researchers went to try and find any shred to say that he existed... They couldn't. And they were looking at, like, oh, let's... To the point where, like, the boat that they claimed had been sunk, they looked at the manifest to try and find this guy's parents, and, like, no, they didn't exist either. Well, it's that no one really interacts with him in his biography. So, like, he's in the sanatorium, but no one's one's interacted. He's just there. And then his parents are dead, and they didn't interact. Why is he? And he went to school in India with private tutors and then to a place in South Africa. Most people aren't going to check up on that and then he's in the army but no one talks to him yeah and he's posted away, miles away yeah, from everywhere yeah but it all sounds when you put it together it's like, oh no that sounds plausible because you were saying that he, he sounds like somebody who had nothing to gain from it and that's yeah. what they kind of wanted to get across but it was all independently wealthy no history of mm. any interest in you know ufos or extraterrestrials but it all kind of fits into the time frame when Sir Patrick Moore was being asked to, you know, go on that um, interview panel to talk about whether aliens could exist. So it almost feels like <clears throat> because there were all these people arguing with him, he was like, I'm going to prove how stupid you are by coming up with this completely fake story and seeing if you fall for it. And I'm not going to expose that. It's just for my benefit so that I know that I am smarter than you. And I will sit at home knowing that I am smarter than you and being more than happy with that. I don't need to... Well, or maybe he was waiting for someone to use it in an argument against him before it... He was waiting <laughs> the for grand the, reveal. Yeah, the, the, that, that moment. <laughs> that would be worth well, it. Well, there's, there's, there's uh, research showing that this... I forgot his name. Cedric Gallingham. No, he doesn't exist. I, don't, I yeah. can't remember him. <laughs> He's immediately been wiped. <laughs> Not a real person. I don't need to worry about him. <laughs> Goodbye, Cedric. <laughs> Out of my mind. There's robust evidence that in the Highlands... That it was me. <laughs> oh, and he takes his monocle off. Doesn't need it. <laughs> yeah, that would be the... Like that guy off CSI. He takes it off he used to take his glasses There's no off, eye yeah. behind it. The eye sort of attached to the monocle. <laughs> I'd off my monocle, dear sir. Good day. So there you go. That is... Jesus Christ. And I like the fact that, much like Patrick, I completely lied to you about the content of the story until the very last minute. And you lied to me about... Oh, you... Both... uh, Yeah, twice. I lied to you twice. I told you it was about something it wasn't about, and then you went through the entire story and... As though it was true. As though it was true. So I'm I'm sorry. I feel like I've created a trust issue that may come back to haunt me with the next episode where you're just going to be bullshit... 
No, I'm just in the same <laughs> continuation of the trust they already have. Oh, good. Yeah. They'll be like, Queen Victoria, bullshit. There was never a Queen Victoria. <laughs> there wasn't, actually, because that wasn't her real name. That was a middle name, but still. Her first name was... Alexandria. Oh, was it? Hmm? That's a better Queen name. I know, I think so, too. But it's not very British. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.